0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. That young man's very brave.
1: Yeah, he's my hero.
0: Give up everything to free his sister from that place. Go from being a doctor on the central planets to hiding on the fringes of the system. There's not many would do that. Suppose not. There's not many would take him in either. Why did you? Same reason I took you on board, Shepard. I need the bear. (laughs) There's neither of us can pay a tenth of what your crew makes on one of your jobs. Are you referring to our perfectly legitimate business enterprises? I'm wondering why. A man so anxious to fly under Alliance radar with Howe's known fugitives. The Alliance had her in that institution for a purpose, whatever it was, and they will want her back. You're not overly fond of the boys, so why risk it? Because it's the right thing to do.
2: Welcome everyone, it is Thursday, June 22nd, 2017. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right.
1: Fade into
2: color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Every week we describe and introduce our show as being not right-wing, just right. Now we've discussed the distinction before, and have investigated the history and philosophy of several other political positions and ideologies on past broadcasts. I think it's time for a political system update today, in particular the left-right spectrum and those polarized labels themselves. You know, a great awakening descended upon me over the past several weeks, in part because of some of the conversations we've had with our recent show guests, and in part because of what I've been hearing at various events and lectures I've attended over the past couple of months, all in conjunction with what we're doing here on Just Right. Don't forget that you can write us at feedback at org. subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past broadcasts. Things have been quite busy of late with respect to Just Right. We've had quite a straight run of guests on the show lately whose conversations in conjunction with what I've been hearing from other sources on the so-called right, quote-unquote, have in part been the inspiration of my theme today. This past Saturday, I was in Toronto attending the Rebel Live Media event. I made a point of going because scheduled to be at that event, although a few were unable to make it, were Ezra Levant, Doug Ford, Faith Goldie, Gavin McGinnis, Sheila Gunn-Reed, Raheel Raza, Joe Oliver, Brian Lilly, Jerry Agar, Kaolin Robertson, Salim Mansoor, Jordan Peterson, and of course, Master of Ceremonies, David Menzies. Now, out of that speakers group, four have been past guests on this show. Ezra Levant, Brian Lilly, Rahil Raza, and of course, our own Salim Mansour. And the fifth, is slated to join us on a future broadcast of Just Right, none other than Dr. Jordan Peterson. We have already recorded an exclusive Just Right video production of Jordan Peterson. It was recorded at a private event held by the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, SAFS, at the University of Western Ontario on Saturday, May 13th. And like the Rebel Media's event, SAFS' event was also a full-day session. Now, Robert Vaughn has now informed me that Just Right's video production of Dr. Jordan Peterson's appearance at Western will be available, in his own words, quote-unquote, in weeks, not months. (laughs) Dr. Peterson's video will not be the only video released at the same time. We also filmed and recorded Dr. Jan Narvison of the University of Waterloo. Who spoke on climate change, and we recorded Professor Christina Baimey of the Department of Philosophy in Brandon University, and her subject was about does banning hate speech eliminate hatred, and she talks about the case of East Germany. Now, strange as this might sound, all of these interrelated events and so many of the comments and opinions I heard expressed around them are what ultimately pushed me to finally getting around to addressing a concern I've been keeping on the back burner, maybe for a bit too long. One thing remains clear. When it comes to even any discussion of values, freedom, or an understanding that ideas matter, what we call the left, or the left wing, is sadly entirely excluded from the equation. So naturally, just about all of the speakers I've been watching and hearing throughout all of these various discussions were what is popularly identified as being voices on the right. Lo and behold, I get back after attending the Rebel Live Media event in Toronto to discover that my daughter Danielle has forwarded yet another of what appears to be a continuing and growing implosion of the right in the pages of the National Post, but the article, amazingly enough, touches upon just about every element of my planned thesis for Just Right this week, about the true and real nature of what it really means to be politically on the left or on the right. But on top of that, guess who's the target of this editorial's criticism? Why none other than Jordan Peterson, wouldn't you know? The article is by David Reevely. See if you can take the social justice warriors out at the top, Jordan Peterson says, reads the headline, and it's by Postmedia News on June 16th. And I quote, Kathleen Wynne is a radical leftist who wants to tear down the things that made Ontario, Canada, and the West great, University of Toronto psychologist Jordan Peterson told a crowd assembled by Tory MPP Randy Hillier in Carlton Place on Thursday night. If she had a shred of integrity, she'd resign, Peterson said to applause from a riser in a corner on a second-floor ballroom at the town arena. See if you can take the social justice warriors out at the top, he advised. Young people could and should be energized into conservative activism by the promise of completely wiping out the Ontario Liberal Party, he said. There should be not one Liberal MPP left after the next election. Hillier, who represents Lanark, Frontenac, lennox and Addington, had billed Peterson's talk as non-political. And it wasn't. If you look around the world at the state of governance in most places, the most pathological and vicious thugs rule. When is a radical leftist who'd have been a pariah, even within the New Democratic Party 20 or 30 years ago? Humanities programs at universities are corrupt, and universities as a whole have lost their way, turning out cringing milksops who see themselves as victims. Canada is not the same country it was ten years ago. We need to wake up and stop this from happening, Peterson spat. Thursday night, he offered the hundred or so people in the hall a list of suggestions for selling conservatism to young voters. Besides raising the Liberal Party, they included being unapologetically in favor of Western values and individual freedom. Recognizing that responsibilities are more important than rights, promoting traditional nuclear families, and championing hierarchies of competence that reward people for their work. Peterson is a tenured professor at a major university who took a tough public stand against political correctness, or if you prefer, decency, and the results were predictable. The left, including many of Peterson's fellow academics, recoiled, and the right went bananas. One of hard-edged conservatism's rhetorical tricks (laughs) is to talk about moderate mainstream liberalism as if it's loony left-wing extremism. Peterson does that. Peterson said several times on Thursday night that a healthy society needs debate, including between right and left. But it's hard to say what legitimate leftism might look like in a Petersonian world. Talk radio populism with an intellectual rapper, where the other side isn't just wrong, but sick and evil. So anyways, that's the end of that article by David Revely of the National Post. There's so many things wrong with this picture that I don't even know where to begin (laughs) Who's going to tell PC leader Patrick Brown that one of his MPPs is going around unapologetically promoting Western values and individual freedom? Because I've never seen any evidence of those two things being actually advocated by any progressive conservatives. None of the leaders. I don't hear any of them talking like that. They give it the occasional lip service, and you, but then you watch their policies, they move in the exact opposite direction. Hello? Progressive means socialist. Socialist means the opposite of Western values and individual freedom. And conservative? It can mean anything and everything, as we shall clearly come to understand shortly. But that epistemological disaster is not even the one that's bothering me today. It's, you know, the writer of the National Post He chides Dr. Peterson for arguing that Kathleen Wynne is a radical leftist who wants to tear down things that made Ontario, Canada, and the West great. Well, that's perfectly true. And much, much more. Her radical leftist viewpoints are manifesting themselves in both communism and fascism, both on the left, on so profound a scale that most people cannot comprehend it even though they're experiencing it. And that's an issue... I intend to isolate on a future broadcast. I have absolutely nothing good to say about Ontario's Liberals or their party leader. They are pure poison for the province. And the word poison, remember, is a label that politically could just as easily read left. Quote, look around the world at the state of governance in most places. The most pathological and vicious thugs rule, end quote, quotes Peterson as saying. Again, Peterson is Right. And pathological and vicious thugs are all to be found on the left. Quote, Peterson took a tough public stand against political correctness, or if you prefer, decency, writes Reevely in what is yet another epistemological disaster. Political correctness is not decency nor politeness, Mr. Reevely. This is morally and intellectually dishonest in the extreme. Reevely writes that it's some kind of trick, quote, unquote, to, quote, talk about modern mainstream liberalism as if it's loony left-wing extremism and cites that Peterson does that, end quote. Again, writes Reveley, Peterson said several times on Thursday night that a healthy society needs debate, including between left and right. But it's hard to say what legitimate leftism might look like in a Petersonian world, he writes, end quote. And, you know, double plus wrong again. Now, it's true that healthy society needs debate, but the left does not engage in debate, not in my experience. Nor is it interested in debate, nor in being persuaded, nor in reason, nor in logic, nor in sound economic sense. What are you trying to do even talking to them? The left is chaos in every sense of the word, and the sooner we learn that, the sooner we can steer our way clear of a terrible repeat of history's worst lessons never learned the left, quote-unquote, in Petersonian's world would look exactly like it does wherever it manifests itself. Communism, fascism, socialism, anything but freedom, capitalism, or individualism.
1: When I was growing up and the Cold War was raging, I, I couldn't understand precisely why we had divided into two armed camps around our respective ideological positions. Either why those ideological positions were so important that people would risk the destruction of the world to protect them, let's say, or why it was those two particular ideologies, or whether or not this was just a difference of opinion, right? Which would be that would be a more postmodern view, is there's multiple ways that you can organize societies. In the West, we happen to organize our society one way, but that's one of a plethora of potential ways of organizing society. And let's say the communists had decided to organize their society another way and Human beings are infinitely malleable, and so, you know, the social structures that we occupy are arbitrary in some sense, and matter of opinion. And maybe collective opinion, but nonetheless still a matter of opinion. And I thought, well, is it the case that the values that we hold to be true in the West are merely based upon opinion? And the conclusion that I came to, as a consequence of hitting the question from multiple different perspectives, was that that was not a reasonable way of formulating of of interpreting the evidence (laughs) This is very complicated and, and makes a difficult transition in the talk So, I'm going to read something first This is from the from the Gospel of John It's one of the most famous lines in the Bible In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God It's a very strange idea because from a cosmological perspective because it posits that there's something conscious or cognitive about the origin that there's there's a necessary (laughs) cognitive element to the origin And I think about that essentially as something associated with consciousness And, of course, we don't really understand the relationship between consciousness and being. We don't understand consciousness at all. Um, But it seems integrally associated, at least with our individual beings, because one of the things that we seem to not doubt is that we are, in fact, conscious, and that so are other people. And if I treat someone as if they're not conscious, well, they tend not to be very happy about that. So, they'll certainly object to it. So, despite what we might say we believe, we certainly act as if we regard all other human beings as conscious. Mm -hmm. And the consciousness is a pre- prerequisite for their, for the existence of their experience. Anyways, so that there's this emphasis in, in this book that is at the root of our culture. That there's something about verbal communication in particular that has to be regarded as foundational. And I, I think that's actually, to some degree, in keeping with the postmodernist claims that everything is a language game. Let's say that everything is constructed by language. Now, I don't believe that everything is constructed by language, but I'm just pointing that out because you can take this particular perspective and you can look at it from ver- a variety of different intellectual sources and still derive an analog of the of the claim from it. So. And then, I, so that, that was, so, so I want you to keep that in the back of your mind for a moment. Now, th- that idea that, that the word was there at the beginning of creation, that's a very, very old idea. It's, it's older than the Judeo Christian uh, context from which I extracted it. So, for example, in Egypt, there was a god named Ptah, who was a major god. I may be pronouncing that wrong. But as far as the Egyptians were concerned, he was the original creator and he created as a consequence of thinking, but more specifically as a consequence of speaking. So again, there was this idea that there was this primacy of speaking as a, as a force that brings being into existence.
2: It's all about epistemology, isn't it? That branch of philosophy that deals with knowledge and with how we know what we know and how we know what we know is true and real. Not just a matter of opinion, says Jordan Peterson, and he's right, just right. And I have to tell you, my jaw literally dropped when Dr. Peterson turned around and began reading the very biblical quote I have cited so many times on past broadcasts of this show. You know, what Dr. Peterson was attempting to describe is the emergence, I think, not of consciousness per se, although he's he's totally on the right track, but the emergence of conceptualization. The word. We've talked about this before on the show. Consciousness and existence are both axiomatic. They can no longer be studied or reduced to further study or proved in any way because you run up against the law of non contradiction, don't you? Yeah. In other words, you could never prove that existence does not exist because then the proof would also not exist. And also, you could never prove that consciousness does not exist because then you would have no means of either expressing nor apprehending any such proof in the absence of such consciousness. You wouldn't even be conscious of it. (laughs) There'd be nothing to say. It's It's such a contradiction in terms. Now, animals have consciousness, but they're unable to conceptualize on the level of human beings. That is man's unique ability in the animal kingdom, because it permits humans to behave rationally, in the light of knowledge, of certain knowledge. And to the degree that one properly conceptualizes the physical and social objects and forces in one's life, you'll be able to project your goals into the future with relative success. Now, every word represents a concept. We use these concepts not merely to communicate, but to think, to reason, and to identify everything in the world around us. It's how we function. And some of those concepts happen to be political abstractions, and political concepts are derivatives of philosophical ideas. If the words you are using to think do not correctly describe and define the concepts to which they properly refer, then your mind will be full of garbage. You know, like like that old computer saying, remember? Garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> and that sure describes politics today in the sense of being garbage. Today's politics is not about governing free peoples in a free society. It's about ruling, monopolizing, and doing things that are done by the left, which does not govern with the consent of the governed. It rules without the consent of the governed. I just have to pause and comment on a related political game of words that we encountered on our show last week, because it's been kind of bugging me for a while. It also relates to this definition conundrum one that I think prevents movement in the right direction, at least in the direction I'd like to push things in. In our conversation last week with Vancouver municipal councillors Chris Graham and Melissa Haley, I posed my traditional question that I do for most municipal guests on the show. Quote, do you regard the municipality more as a government or as a business? End quote. And then uh, Robert Vaughn then raised what he called a long-standing disagreement that he apparently has with me on this point, which I actually didn't notice at the time because I disagree with Robert that he disagrees with me, (laughs) if that makes any sense at all. Because when I ask the question about government or business, I'm not really interested in the answer to that question per se. There is no right or wrong answer in today's context. What interests me is what the answer tells me about the person to whom I've asked the question. Namely, it tells me something about his or her outlook or perspective on municipal government. Because that will drive everything, particularly in a fundamental uh, premise or purpose of how a person would basically govern. Well, surprise, surprise. Both our two guests and Robert, if you'll excuse the expression... Quote unquote "...went libertarian on me, <laughs> missing the entire intention of my question." Um, my fault, maybe. I, I, I have no issue with that. But, you know, a government is that which taxes went their refrain. There is nothing wrong with that argument, as far as it goes, but I don't think it goes very far. Municipalities, as corporations, are mere corporate bodies, everyone agreed. But that left a lot of questions unanswered that it was not my place to pursue at that time. But now is a good time, so I'm going to do it now. For example, can a government itself in any way be regarded as a corporate body? Does the mere fact of incorporation determine the nature of the legal entity? Or how about the other side of that coin? If government is to be defined by merely having the power to levy a tax then is a corporate body that taxes people but that does not govern a government in any way? What would you say to a government, perhaps only a small one, that operated entirely on voluntary financing? Would it still be called a government? And aren't the people, quote-unquote, supposed to be part of any government? Are they considered incorporated with respect to the municipality towards which they pay taxes? And if they're part of the government, if they're taxing themselves, which is the prevailing political-economic theory, wouldn't that mean that any issues of coercion or being forced to pay taxes is moot? I mean, how can a person tax himself, right? You've heard that, that old saying before. Now, now these, these questions might sound silly, but they're not mere semantic issues. And as long as we keep thinking in fuzzy distinctions, we'll keep sliding leftward. I'm convinced of that. Government originates in the moral facility, noted Isabel Patterson. It requires a moral code to engage in the practice of anything we would rightly call governing. The institutions society creates should be those that enshrine and protect that moral code. And of course, from our point of view, that moral code, clearly defined, rests on the axiom of reality, Reason, self, and consent, that's the philosophic axiom, in its political form, it turns into the protection of life, liberty, and property. And finally, before we move on to left and right, just what do we mean by business? You know, that, that was the other word that came up. My suggestion that a municipality should be run like a business was equally met by our two guests and Robert last week by doing the libertarian thing again, and concluding on the grounds of economics and economic theory that a business is something that operates on profit. And we wouldn't want the municipality to turn into a profit-making venture, would we? And well, how could I disagree with that? I wouldn't. As usual, the problem between my understanding of the question I was trying to ask and what they were responding to is epistemological and context. What is meant by something being a business? Now, the definitions I heard from both Robert and from Chris Graham were strictly, I think, I call them libertarian definitions, economic definitions, that are quite correct, but completely out of context relative to my concern. And that told me something about not the theory of business versus government, but about how Robert and Chris look at the distinction in strictly an economic way. Which I think is technically correct. I can't argue with it, but it's it's a very narrow context, which is not a full context. You know, I just picked up the dictionary and looked at the Funk and Wagnalls, and it says business uh, one, an occupation, trade, or profession. Two, any of the various operations or details of trade or industry. Three, a commercial enterprise or establishment, a firm, factory, store, etc. Four, the amount of or volume of trade. Five, a proper interest or concern, responsibility, duty. Six, a matter of affair. And they go on to other definitions, like even in theater, the movements, facial expressions, apart from the dialogue, by which actors interpret a part. That's called the business. But two of these definitions were very important. A proper interest or concern, responsibility and duty, and a matter of affair. But in the end, everyone on last week's show agreed that the municipality should mind its own business and keep its nose out of micromanaging the business of others in the community, which was a huge part of the very distinction that I was trying to establish. When municipalities micromanage private businesses, then they're behaving very much like a government. You saw him here. Last night with a
0: small one. But this morning, I saw them both with you in the staff car, I think, it's the staff car. And his name is Hogan, Colonel Hogan, an escaped prisoner. Not escaped. He comes and he goes on business.
2: Uh-huh.
0: It's not my concern because business is business. three.
1: One, two, three. Hey, that was a Lulu. Oh, very nice indeed. Uh, oh, great timing, Luca. You did very well, Luca. Thank you very much,
0: chap. For my next number, I shall do a request explosion. <laughs> oh, you uh, shake your old bloody
1: Come mouth. on, come on, let's get out of here. Right, right. Hey, Carter, oh, which right. way back to camp? Well, I don't know. <laughs> what? I beg
0: your pardon?
1: Well, I was afraid to tell you guys, I
0: don't know where we are. I guess I must have dropped the compass. <laughs> ah, how stupid can you get? You ruddy foe. Not very bright. Well, if I had any brains, would I be a prisoner of war?
2: <laughs> do we get back to camp? Maybe we could ask somebody.
1: Who do we ask? A German soldier? All right, all right, all right. take or Hold it. Let's
2: not lose our heads. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And thank you to all our financial supporters who have made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Be sure to visit www.justwritemedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, all archived for your listening enjoyment. Well, you sure don't want to be losing your head after you've already lost your compass, but that tends to be what happens, particularly in politics. And that compass in politics is the proper representative meanings assigned to the terms left and right, which, like it or not, everybody uses, even if they don't understand them, even if they say they reject them, even if they say that, no, I don't really get it. But they end up using those labels in some way. You know, we constantly hear many people say that the terms left and right are meaningless today. Meaningless labels. I hear it all the time it's the policies account not ideologies we should be pragmatic financially sound or operate on common sense or maybe just on the spirit of christmas or something and you know so it goes what people who say things like that are really doing is making a confession really <laughs> they're lost and they don't know which direction to turn they might know what it is that they want to run away from But they're not sure which direction to turn because the usual left and right labels they once understood no longer seem to be functional and so they they can't rely on them. But it's not the labels, it's the people who are using those labels incorrectly. So desperately, they choose to abandon the label in frustration, although no such abandonment or dismissal of the labels is possible. Been there, done that, (laughs) doesn't work. Allow me to illustrate the significance and necessity of labels in a more blunt way. Picture a cross and skull bones. Both the word poison and the skull and cross bones associated with it are labels. The label doesn't itself list the ingredients of what might be in the bottle, but everybody knows what it means. Stay away. Death awaits. Well, left is a label it doesn't list the ideological ingredients but everybody has some kind of notion of what it might mean but unfortunately too few understand that it means poison in politics if the simple symbolic yet real distinct uh, real directions of left and right are not clear then everything will end up falling to the left it'll turn to poison because the left requires no clarity no purpose no construction just destruction no production just redistribution of that production and ironically no direction not even left because a left doesn't even rate being called a direction given that it moves in all directions except right this 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 problem comes up in the, comes up in the generic definitions of left and right too as you'll see when we end the show now jordan peterson asked earlier are the forces between opposing ideologies arbitrary or objective? Is it just about a difference of opinion, which he defined as the postmodernist view, or is it about something real? And he correctly concluded that it is not an arbitrary issue. The same question you could ask about left and right. Are the ideologically representative and opposing differences between them merely a matter of opinion? Or is there something quite objective and not arbitrary at play? And how would we know? Well, ideas, when put into practice, have consequences. We know, both in theory and in practice, which ideas politically produce which consequences. This is no secret. One of the reasons Jordan's always upset that people don't read their history. So... If both the idea and its consequences are properly aligned with the appropriate left or right label, then our political compass becomes functional once again. Beyond the issue of political direction, definitions are necessary to allow us to conceptualize. If we cannot do that, then we'll never be on the same page when we talk about any given subject, never mind politics. Now, in the past, we've already refuted the well-established and quite wrong political scale of left and right that places, you know, the one that places communism on the extreme left and fascism on the extreme right and then they tell us that we we should try to remain in the middle of these two forms of totalitarianism as if somehow individual rights, freedom and capitalism and western values rest on that balance between communism which happens to be total state ownership and control of the means of production And fascism, which happens to be total total state control, but not ownership of the means of of production. So freedom and capitalism and Western values of any sort do not even exist on that left-right scale. So obviously it has to be patently wrong because freedom and capitalism are real abstractions that exist in the real world. So let's get out our dictionaries and set some of these definitions straight, and maybe in a few cases you know, make a few other definitions a little less muddled, I guess. And remember, these definitions and associations were not created arbitrarily, no matter how arbitrarily or incorrectly they might be applied by those unaware of the problem. This is from Sapphire's Political Dictionary, which was originally written in 1980. Left-wing, right-wing. The ideological spectrum, he defines them as. Reading from left to right, radical, liberal, Centrist, conservative, reactionary. There you go, that's the left and right wing spectrum according to Sapphire's Political Dictionary. And I think that's, that's useless, it's pathetic. One adjective after another. All floating abstractions, all subject to subjectivism. Although they have their relative meanings in relative, relative times. You know, interestingly as noted before on this show, this very definition suggested that, and I quote, the left wing the left right wing spectrum is not a straight bar. The relationships are better explained by considering it as kind of a horseshoe. That the extreme leftist or radical or communist has more in common with an extreme reactionary or fascist than either has with the moderate now, while that might be true, it's, it's a very bad way of picturing it on a scale that's supposed to be polar opposites. If you've got to bend both ends towards the center, what kind of scale is that? Now, this again is incorrect with respect to the left and right scale, but quite correct with respect to the fact that both communists and fascists are the same. You've noticed that. So why keep them on opposite sides of a scale? What are you trying to do? What the hell's that about? Having acknowledged that, why do political scales continue to put two things that are the same, you know, communism and fascism, on the opposite side of a supposed spectrum? That's just not right, pardon the pun. Again, in the middle between a fascist and communist is not a moderate. <laughs> what a cop out word used to make this stupid left right scale appear to work. If it's a political scale at all, the guy sitting in the middle of it is both a fascist and a communist, someone who doesn't care what form of totalitarianism you adopt. You know, they're comparing two different kinds of categories on the same scale. On the one hand, adjectives which describe the degree of someone's apparent fanaticism, you know, radical and reactionary but without substance. And on the same scale, they squeeze in communist and fascist politico. Economic systems, the only two options I must stress, along with all the other non sequitur adjectives so it's a it's a ridiculous scale. Then I turn to this much more current uh incarnation of political dictionaries, the Oxford Concise Dictionary of Politics, written by Ian McLean and Alistair Macmillan in two thousand and nine and here's their definition of right wing, the opposite of left isn't that useful. <laughs> But they go on, of course. As with the term left-wing, the label right-wing has many connotations which vary over time and are often only understood within the particular political context. In advanced liberal democracies, perhaps more than anything else, the right has been defined in opposition to socialism or social democracy. Now we start seeing some of the real traits coming out of the definition as a result the ideologies and philosophies of right wing political parties have included elements of quote conservatism christian democracy liberalism libertarianism and nationalism and for extreme right parties racism and fascism now here the right wrong again extreme right racism fascism sorry that's the left that's the left that's not extreme right And the irony is, all those other things, you know, conservative, Christian, democracy, liberal, those are all on the left too. (laughs) Oh, wow, talk about confused. Now, they define left this way. Quote, in political terms, now indicative of the radical or progressive socialist spectrum, but originally, literally a spatial term. In the French Estates General of 1789, commoners sat on the left of the king because the nobles were in the position of honor, On the right. What it is to be, quote, left-wing varies so much over space or time that a definition is very difficult, but the following orientations would normally be involved. Egalitarianism, support for the organized working class, support for nationalization of industry, hostility to marks of hierarchy, opposition to nationalistic foreign or defense policy. Now that was from the Oxford Concise Dictionary. So despite all of the admitted lack of clear definitions of right and left on the part of the dictionary itself, the general defined orientations were still properly uh, polarizing to the correct left or right side of the pole on the scale as they've described it. What it is to be left-wing varies so much over space or time that a definition is very difficult, they write. But that's no more difficult than converting from the British system to metric. The nature of force does not change simply because the people who call themselves by a different political label from time to time change. Now, it appeared that philosopher novelist Ayn Rand had little use for left right scales, but she had a much more logical appreciation of it. And she only, one only thing I found about her on this that she wrote about was this rightists versus leftists. And I quote, Since today there are no clear definitions of political terms, I use the word rightist to denote the views of those who are predominantly in favor of individual freedom and capitalism, and the word leftist to denote the views of those who are predominantly in favor of government controls and socialism. As as to the middle or center, I take it to mean zero, i.e. no dominant position, a pendulum swinging from side to side, side, moment by moment. And that's Ayn Rand speaking. Unfortunately, I I think she still didn't get it quite right in terms of the purpose of all of this. She described the scale in terms of people and not of ideas, the latter being the only way that a left and right scale would really work well as a guide or in practice. Not that you can't apply it to people, but that's not its intention. This put her in the untenable position of having to unnecessarily explain the middle of the scale, which is not a position relative to any given idea or ideas in polarization. It, it's only relative to people who can be contradictory and inconsistent, unlike a specific single idea itself. It has to be self-contained. To her credit, and unlike traditional left-right scales, and this was what I thought was amazing, Ayn Rand, in this simple perspective that we just read, at least... Polarized the left and right scale properly, placing freedom and capitalism on the right and placing socialism and government controls, etc., on the left. Now, using this scale, both fascism and communism would now properly be aligned on the left. You know, to make the scale functional as a political guide, it has to be based on the ideas represented by each polarized side of the scale, not by the individuals who use the scale. Uh, you know if on on the other hand an individual is to be defined using a left and right scale and say was found to have eight left wing ideas and six right wing ideas i think it would still be more proper to define that person as either left or right depending on how much you would weigh those opposing principles at work in the mind of the individual involved however you might do that <coughs> on On a hierarchy of values, perhaps just one of those myriad of left-right issues might be the one to decide which political label might be best for an individual. Remember, our only options in this discussion are left and right. Now, even with my own ideas about left and right scales, such as I'm describing here, a larger problem presents itself. One, not about definitions, but about the monsters among us, who those definitions reveal. If you stop to think about it, in its purest form, the left is uncivilized. Civilization being the mark of a society that prohibits the use of force in human relationships. Why should civilized people constantly allow uncivilized people to attack them through their own system of government because they call it democracy? Dangerous question, isn't it? And it's not one that hasn't been asked before. Are all individuals therefore fit for the rule of law? And this is no idle consideration. History has dealt with that problem many times in the past. And here's Professor Daniel Robinson of Oxford University speaking exactly to that point.
0: Now, Aristotle turns to Sophocles' Antigone to remind his Greek audience, his Athenian students, what he means by a universal precept, a universal principle of equity. There are certain notions of fairness that virtually express our rationality this is not something that's going to vary from place to place that is find an entity in whom this principle is not operative and you've got an entity that might be human in name only or in face only or in body only but is utterly lacking in one of the defining attributes of a human being namely a rational recognition that certain principles are determinative. Now, Cicero gives a label to this, referring to it as the us gentium. This is the law of nations. Gains, gentis. Uh, Gains is a a tribe, a clan, a nation. Gentis is the genitive. Um, Us gentium, then. Gentium is the genitive plural. So the us gentium is the law of nations, the law of, of a people, and the law of peoples. Of course, the question that arises then is how the use gentium is to be understood. Cicero already recognizes that it cannot be explained by assuming that tribe A somehow taught this to tribe B, which then taught it to tribe C, etc., etc., so it becomes the use gentium by imitation. This can't be because the use gentium is operative in places that have been utterly unaffected by other places. So, to explain this, Cicero develops an explanation. He doesn't label it. The label for it will be assigned in the 1st and 2nd centuries A.D. But the explanation that Cicero offers for the Us Gentium is that it arises from the very nature of human nature itself. It reflects something that is essential to a rational being, essentially known by a rational being. And as I say, by the end of the first century A.D., this will be referred to as the use naturala, the natural law. And indeed, Cicero, as with Aristotle before him, as with Sophocles before both of them, and to some extent Homer before all of them, is laying the foundations for one of the most developed theories in philosophy of law, the theory of natural law. It will, of course, become famously developed and promulgated by Thomas Aquinas. To this day, there are those who believe that natural law theory is uh, some Roman Catholic conspiracy, so it is useful to remind such people that Aristotle was not a very good Christian at all, and Socrates, in this respect, was even worse. Well, let us produce our fictional Carthaginian again, this time coming to Athens, where it's not a matter of putting his chariot in front of the courthouse. Now he robs the bank. He kills the teller and he gets away in a getaway chariot, uh, taking on an assumed name. Later apprehended, he appears before the magistrate and let's say he says this now, well, your honor, I'm from Carthage and uh, we're a fairly wild bunch there. And I didn't realize that in Rome you are not supposed to commit murder, rob, cause mayhem, etc. Well now, the magistrate is likely to say something like this. Ignorantia legis neminem excusat. Ignorance of the law excuses no one. Now we've seen that ignorance of traffic ordinances did constitute grounds of excuse... So what is the magistrate getting at when he says, ignorance of the law excuses no one? In this, he reflects on an aspect of the rule of law itself that is more fundamental than statutes and local ordinances. He is affirming those principles, those core understandings, possessed by anyone who is actually fit for the rule of law. Not to know this much, is actually to be one outside the rule of law. It is to be an unnatural or undeveloped or defective kind of being, part of no gains at all, part of no nation, community
2: at all. You know, as Jordan Peterson was quoted in the National Post, the most pathological and vicious thugs rule. So, you know, defective beings, wow, frightening thought, really. And, and, and here's the point, especially when dealing with the the huge unwashed masses. I hate using that term, but it's the fact when you're talking about politics. It is always best to keep it simple, right? The KISS principle, as they say. A properly polarized left and right contrast, I think, would do more than all of the explanations and persuasions you could throw at people, because a fixed set of goalposts is the best compass possible in such a scenario. Remarkably, Despite all of the changes in the use and definitions of terms like liberal, conservative, etc., the terms left and right have remained relatively stable with respect to the ideas they've come to represent. It's very interesting to watch it. There was a time when people who call themselves conservative, liberal, democrat held ideas at least relatively compatible with a free democracy. Today, all three of those labels in the political arena generally refer to leftist socialism to some degree or the other. The trend of all of these parties, including the Greens and Libertarians, is towards the left, and and particularly towards fascism. They hate to hear that, but that's where they are philosophically heading, even though they don't talk that way. When it comes to the right side of the political spectrum, conservatives and Libertarians, I'm afraid, have been misrepresenting themselves as champions of the right, You know, Ayn Rand repeatedly referred to libertarians as, quote, an aberration of some conservatives, the so-called hippies of the right, end quote. Libertarians, you know, they're they're a lost cause when it comes to working to achieve freedom. I know this from personal experience, we've discussed it on the show. Their preoccupation with what they call less government offers no indication whatever as to what, quote-unquote, amount of government they would consider just right. What's the right amount of government? You'll never hear them talk that way. That's not even, uh, ooh, we don't go there. And conservatives are a lost cause when it comes to achieving freedom because they're great at devising and managing socialist programs, but they leave the ideological work to the liberals and the left. You know, I'm constantly reminded of a story I've shared before when in my first provincial outing as a candidate for the Freedom Party of Ontario, my Conservative opponent praised my comments and openly invited me to join the Conservative Party. We need voices like you, he said. And all I could think was, if you really do agree with what I'm saying, then why aren't you saying it now? Save me the trouble of having to get out here. Why isn't the Progressive Conservative Party saying what I'm saying? They've never said anything similar to what I was proposing, and yet they were always complimenting everything that I would say. Oh yeah, we like your ideas, we like your ideas. What a bunch of crap. If you like my ideas, what are you doing in that camp? That was in the early 80s, and I have yet to hear about the Progressive Conservative Party ever taking even a single step away from socialism and state control or towards freedom, capitalism, and individual rights. Not a single step, or any of those fundamental freedoms. Instead, they whittle them all away for sheer lust of power, for power's sake. You know, it's the epitome of evil in every respect. In other words, it's a party moving leftwards. Now, remember, I'm, I'm using freedom as my standard of the good here. If, if that's not your standard of the good, well, then everything I'm saying is irrelevant anyway. You should have tuned out 45 minutes ago. Now, there are a vast majority of people who are undefined philosophically and politically. They may never in their entire lives reach any fundamental conclusion or hold any firm beliefs on any of those levels. They'll never know if they're on the left or on the right. And in the course of history, and this is not meant to be disparaging, because it's just a mere fact, well, they just don't count. And they don't make a big difference to the big picture. They may vote in elections, but their motivations will be one of pure self-interest whether voting out of some panic and self-defensive action or reaction to vote against whatever political party is in power then, or their self-interest may be best served by keeping the political party in power, especially if it keeps up their organized labor wages and benefit packages, etc. You know what I'm talking about. Now, once you're at this stage, the war of ideas has long since been abandoned. It's already over by the time you're at that level. And of course, Liberals and New Democrats are at the epicenter of every assault on Western values and philosophically are fully dedicated to the very principles Canada sent its soldiers to Europe to fight against in the last war, the the totalitarian state. And the Greens are just as bloodied red as the other two. And sadly, the Conservatives are not far behind. But here's the really bad news. On the left-right scale that works and is applicable to the real world, and to the political world, all of these political entities sit entirely on the left. Communist, Green, Liberal, NDP, Conservative, Libertarian, you name it. All except Freedom Party in in Ontario. They all operate on the primacy of consciousness. You can see it in their policies, in their practices. Over the primacy of existence, that's philosophically. The irrelevance of facts, even the law of identity in terms of identifying who's, who's who and what's what in politics. It's just not there. There's a deep want, you know, this desire, without any means of achieving it. Just vote for it. Vote for a living. Don't work for a living. <laughs> the establishment of group rights and, you know, versus individual rights. Control of the economy rather than free markets, and on and on it goes. Every party is offering those options in some way, shape, or form, even though they might not be the exact same op- options, but they're the same ideas. You can't just seek power for power's sake if the plan has anything to do with creating anything we might want to call freedom. So in the end, when it comes to political ideas and alignments, it's define or be defined, and that means label or be labeled. Personally, when it comes to defining left and right for the political spectrum, I prefer the non-political, generic, and true definitions of each in contrast. They're amazing. Here's what left and right is really about. And this is just from Funk and Wagnalls dictionary. Right. 6 points. 1. Done in accordance with or conformable to moral law or to some standard of rightness, equitable, just, righteous. 2. Conformable to truth or fact. 3. Conformable to a standard of propriety or to the conditions of the case proper fit suitable 4 holding one direction as a line straight direct 5 properly placed disposed or adjusted well regulated orderly and 6 sound in mind or body health healthy and well Now, that's the definition of right. You might think there is a corresponding definition to that in the dictionary definition of left, but there's nothing like that there. All you get with left is this, and it's perfect. Quote, past tense and past participle of leave. That's what I like the left to do, is leave. Which about perfectly summarizes everything there is to say about the word left In a regular dictionary. So, you know, as a concept opposed to the right, though, left has no similar or corresponding definitions or qualities that have anything to do with anything other than a relative direction or position being indicated. That's all left is. It's such a shallow, superficial thing. But what if we turned it into what it should mean if it were the opposite generic left term of the generic right term we just heard? What would that sound like? Let's just take the same definition and turn it around. Here's the opposing pole, left. Now I'm using the same definition I got from the Funk and Wagnalls Dictionary, but just turning it around. One, done in opposition to moral law, or with no standard of rightness, inequitable, unjust, self-righteous. Two, incompatible with truth or fact. I mean, how often do we hear it said? They got facts don't matter, facts don't matter. Well, that's the left. Perfect. Three, incompatible with a standard of propriety or inapplicable to the conditions of the case. Improper, unfit, unsuitable. Does that not describe our governments today? Four, holding any direction as a scribble. Crooked, indirect. Five, improperly placed, disposed or adjusted. Well-regulated, or not well-regulated, disorderly. Six, unsound in mind or body, unhealthy, unwell. There you go. Wow, pardon the pun, (laughs) but that's just right. (laughs) I, I simply couldn't have said it better. So forget all those political fictions. You know, the lesson to take away from this is to be certain that the label that gets stuck to you wherever you sit on the political spectrum is the right label that describes your political outlook. Otherwise, You're just fooling yourself, or you are deceiving others. The use of labels is a great way to deceive others. Just call yourself a conservative, for example, even if you're an outright communist or fascist in everything you say and do, and you'll still be guaranteed to gain the support of a great number of people who have only those labels available to them by which to judge any ideas or political candidates. You see the danger? I hope so. I'm going to leave that with you. just want to close on one thing. You know, this is Canada's 150th birthday, and I've been hearing a lot of those various Canadian history ads sponsored in the media, and, and one caught my ear. It's about the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, whose widely known motto goes something like, quote, we always get our man, or they always get their man. But you know what? That's not the, the motto of the, of the RCMP. You know what the real motto is? Something much more significant and profound. And I quote, Uphold the right, end quote. And if that doesn't say something about the importance of being just right, well, then I guess we'll just have to continue the conversation again next week. So join us then when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. The Everything will be all
0: right. I have a plan. A plan? Yes, I do. Hmm. I am going to call General Rudolf von Linzer on the telephone. Oh, General von Rinzer, Luftwaffe! You know him? Ha, Rudy? Why, in military school we were like brothers. Without my help, he would not be where he is now. <sighs> to think that he's a general now. Yeah, 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 fortunes of war. But if he is present, when
2: I get the information about this rocket gun factory... He
0: will put in a good word for you in Berlin. General Klink. That sounds just right, doesn't (laughs) it?